Siyoto Ofa, and welcome to episode 9 of the Tokyo Kamea podcast. This is your host, Richard. Let's not waste any time. Let's start the show. Before we continue with the story, let's do a quick recap. Final Ulkalala, upon hearing that Vabau rebelled, wanted to launch an immediate attack. His priest advised him against it and told him to chill. It just so happens that Final Ulkalala's son, Moingangongo, arrives from Samoa, having fled to Samoa after the assassination of Tukuaho along with Vuna. He was a former Tuibabau who was deposed and exiled by Fuspala. We take a break from all the action for a wedding. Moingangongo, prior to fleeing to Samoa, was betrothed to two daughters of high-ranking chiefs in Wabau. So they have a Samoan-style wedding in which Mariner describes in great detail. The wedding is over and Finau Ulkalala hasn't forgotten about Wabau's treachery. So he returns his sights on Wabau again, but his priests advise him to try a more peaceful approach. So he goes to Wabau in three canoes with a handful of his matapule and warriors who had no connection to Tuponiwa's assassination. He tries the diplomatic approach, but the people of Wabau are so fed up with him and pretty much tell him to F off. He goes back to Hapai feeling a certain type of way because he can't handle the rejection. But he's so petty, he stops at one of the Wabau islands that was rich with kava. And he was like, I'm going to show them. And he orders his men to get off the canoe and go and take all the kava from this little island in Wabau. That is like peak pettiness. And you know what? I'm so happy. I'm proud of myself because I noticed my recaps are getting shorter. Ha ha. So back in Hapai, the day after they returned from their unsuccessful diplomatic mission to Vava'u, Ulkalala's priests tell him that the gods have told them that the time is right to proceed immediately to war against Vava'u. Ulkalala then organizes his forces. He has 5,000 men, 1,000 women, 50 kalia. He has his four carronades, of course the ammunition and all the weapons like muskets and clubs and spears and bows and arrows and everything they needed for war and they set sail for Vava'u. They arrive on the island of Fonua Fo'o on the outskirts of Vava'u, and Ulukalala sends four kalia, manned with select warriors, to go through the inlet that leads to the Fatungakoa fortress in Feletoa and take as many lives as possible. So they went out and they killed three men and severely wounded a fourth, and they brought the bodies of the dead to Ulukalala, a way of assuring themselves divine approval for the carnage they're about to bring to Vava'u. Early in the morning on the next day, they bring their entire fleet to Neafu. Mariner notes that Neafu is a consecrated area. So I remember we talked about um, previous episodes about there was designated, consecrated um, spaces and things like bloodshed and war were tapu when you are in those spaces. So they're kind of like a sanctuary. And Neafu just happens to be one of those consecrated areas where uh, violence and bloodshed was tapu. So obviously a very strategic decision to do this. Ulkalala's party arrives safely to Vava'u, but they leave the women in the canoes until they can verify 
that the coast is clear and that everything was safe. And as soon as they verified that, then they began unloading uh, everything, like the cannons and the uh, weapons they brought for war, and then the women were able to uh, get off the canoes. Mariner notes that the day was spent unloading, um, arranging, and setting up their camp on Neafu, and later that night, they got some visitors from the Feretoa camp. Mariner notes that two or three from the Babao camp threw a spear towards their encampment. One of the spears hit a stack of spears, which caused them to fall and make a lot of noise, and it startled everyone, so they panicked and thought they were under attack. However, one of Ulukalala's men fired a musket and scared them off. But this also caused more commotion in the camp, that some of the men ran towards the canoes. And it wasn't until they all calmed down and realized that what happened wasn't so much a full-fledged attack in that it was just a few men who came to scare them. The Hapai warrior who fired the gun was recognized for his bravery because that was the first time he ever fired a musket and he's never handled one before. So they give him his props and then everything is quiet for the remainder of the night. The next morning, Ulukalala organized his army into three divisions. The right was commanded by Tupoutoa, the left was commanded by Liu Fao, who was a chief of Ha'ano, and the center was commanded by Ulukalala himself. Then he allotted the carinades, two in the center and then one for each flank, managed by the seven Englishmen that was part of the Port-au-Prince crew. A mariner was also one of them and a African slave that the Port-au-Prince picked up from South America as a prize in one of her many raids. Additionally, Fina Ulkalala did something remarkable. He changed up the style of warfare and came up with a strategy that was completely different from what they were utilizing in Tonga before. Prior to this, the battle tactic was that you would go out with your strong men and then somebody from your party would rush out and meet another strong person or warrior from the opposing party and then they would just battle it out and then retreat. And then the next person will go. And I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Shaka Zulu, but this kind of reminds me of it. It's on Netflix right now if you want to show to binge watch. But that was one of the things that made him really successful as... Uh, one of the warrior chiefs in uh, the Zulu nation. And so Ulukalala, the orders that he gave to his men, um, this is the way he changed up the battle tactic, was just to keep close to each other, uh, keep perfectly steady, and not attack the enemy until they get closer to them, and they would attack together. And so we see two things that Finao Ulukalala is doing differently uh, at this time. So he is, you know, the presentation of his warriors, or like the presenting of the guards so that he can inspect them. And I don't know if that's very much influenced by Mariner. I don't know if Mariner told him that that's the way they do things in Europe. And then the other thing was uh, the way he changed up battle tactics. So after all the preparations and Finao Ulukalala was happy, satisfied with what he saw, they began their march to Feletoa. The distance from Neafu to Feletoa is about three miles, or nearly five kilometers. About four to five hours of marching, and slowed down by the weight of the carronades and the rough terrain of the road, they finally arrive at the Fatungakoa fortress. On the banks of the fortress were a large number of the Vava'u warriors waiting for them, and they greet Ulukalala's troops with a shower of arrows. Ulukalala ordered one of his matapule to go towards the fort and ask for a ceasefire. From the book Early Tonga as the explorers saw it, this is what they said about the Feretoa fortress, or about this particular situation. 
When the people of Ava'u advised Finau of their intent to withdraw from his control over them, they knew that it would only be a matter of time before he would descend upon them with his cannons and warriors. They therefore planned and built what was the largest fort in Tonga, designed to house 8,000 people, the entire population of Ava'u at that time. It became, in effect, a fortified town with the features of a highly condensed version of the cultural geographic arrangement of the island as a whole, short only on its agricultural fields. In the center was the Mu'a, where the higher order of chiefs lived, and around it were the homes of those with lesser status. There were several burial grounds as well, presumably took care of the traditional need to segregate the dead by social status. Most important of all was the fort itself, which was built on high ground and contained a structural feature encircling its outer perimeter to ward off the deadly cannonballs. One of the things that made this fort really unique is that the walls were fortified with uh, clay-like dirt. And I remember just from childhood, uh, one of my memories of playing around in that area is that the dirt there is like red soil. And I that's one of the things that I remember because uh, one of the times we were playing there when I was a kid, I got my clothes dirty and I noticed that, you know, it was a different kind of dirt um, and it was more like clay. And so they took the clay and they built walls with it, which helped to absorb the impact of the cannonballs. If you remember the Nukualofa fort, it was completely made with a reed and also made with, uh, with different types of wood. And so the cannonballs just completely destroyed it. So this is obviously a very brilliant counter strategy from the people of Ava'u. So let's see if it worked. Anyway, so back to the story. So Ulkalala ordered one of his matapule to go towards the fort and ask for a ceasefire. Mariner writes, Finau ordered a matapule to advance forward and request an armistice that each party might take leave of what friends and relations they might have among their opponents, which being granted, a number came out of the garrison to take a farewell of their relatives. Perhaps the last farewell of their relatives who were about to fight against them. Here ensued a moving scene. Many tears were shed on both sides, and many a last embrace were exchanged. In a civil war at these islands, as well as at other places, it often happens that sons have to fight against their fathers and brothers against brothers, but what renders this circumstance still more common in Tonga is the adherence to an old established custom, which binds every man in honor to join the cause of that chief on whose island happens to be at the time war is declared, unless some circumstance as particular relationship between great men engages the chief of the island upon earnest request, to him liberty to depart. How crazy and yet how beautiful is that? So before they go to battle, they have this moment where they cease fire and all the relatives from both sides uh, come together and they do their final uh, farewells. That is like the most insane thing. But at the same time, I think it's it's lovely. It's beautiful. One of the things I've always disliked is this narrative that, um, you know, that we are the savages and that uh, we are uncivilized and we've never been civilized until Christianity and Europeans came to our islands and I think this is one of those um, occasions where it totally just proves that wrong um, I don't think that you know savage uh, uncivilized societies would have the rules of engagement that we had just witnessed with this specific incident like that to me is a marker of a very 
civilized and a very sophisticated society. And yes, there was violence, but you know what? There's violence in European societies. There is violence throughout the history of humanity. Uh, there are definitely some things that make Tongan culture, you know, unique. Um, you know, especially in this story where we read about cannibalism and even just the way um, some of these warriors are um, exacting, you know, brutal violence on each other. But that's like, that's not unique to Tonga. That's like every other human society there is. And so this kind of thing, when I read about it, it's just so empowering because it takes a level of intelligence. Yes, even in these barbaric times in Tonga's history, which wasn't always like this, you know, um, that some of these values of Kainga is still recognized and in this time of war is still being practiced. And that's what I mean by beautiful, that, you know, the humanity still shines through and that we are able to have Mariner witness this and document it in his book is so awesome. So this armistice goes on for two hours. Can you imagine? Probably a lot of crying, like, you know, the crying we hear at our funerals and uh, when you're saying farewell to loved ones. And I imagine this was probably something like that. Um, that is still insane and blows my mind that this was actually a part of our culture. But Mariner goes on to, you know, he, he says this goes on for two hours and everything was fine and dandy. And then one of the Vava'u warriors shot an arrow at him and narrowly missed him. And Mariner, acting impulsively, leveled his musket and he shot this dude dead on the spot. And so, of course, the Vava'u warriors are like going crazy and they sounded the war whoop, as Mariner calls it. And I wonder, he talks about this war whoop a lot. What do you guys think that war whoop is? Is it something like a fraulu or are they like ahoka or i i don't know you're a really pushy girl and i might just want to kick your ass yeah well i might just want to kick your ass hey is there, is there a problem here okay back to our story so Mariner says, the king, not understanding the cause, was in a most violent rage with me and would forthwith have dispatched me with his club had he been near enough. Okay, I think that's hilarious. Um, he goes on to say, his matapule did all they could to calm his temper, but he was not easily pacified. He sent a man to me to demand my musket, but feeling myself aggrieved, I preemptorily refused. Finau by this time becoming somewhat calm and learning of my true cause of the disaster, Meantime, the enemy conceived this to be a piece of treachery, returned to their entrenchment, and assailed our party with more showers of arrows. By this time, Ulukalala has seen and heard enough, and he ordered his men to unleash the power of the carronades on the fort. And Mariner said that it was pretty much not doing any damage to the fort because of the height of the place and the strength of the embankment. And this went on for six to seven hours with occasional intermissions, and still they were not successful. And you remember that the Nukwalofa fortress fell in just an hour. And that was supposedly the strongest fort in Tongatapu at that time. And it just 
took them one hour to bring it down and here we are six to seven hours later and they still haven't been able to bring down the fortress at Feretoa. Some of the Vava'u warriors started coming out of the fencing and hid behind the banks. Urukalala ordered all his men to cease fire and sit down and to remain steady and quiet but if the enemy gets too close do not hesitate to attack them. So they followed his orders and sat down and a party of about 15 to 16 Vava'u warriors came out from the fort and eight Hapai warriors ran forward to fight them. One of the Vava'u warriors broke away from the group and made way for one of the carronades and that was the carronade that Mariner operated. And so Mariner sees him coming and fires his musket at him, but the Vava'u warriors successfully evaded the shot. He gets up and he runs towards Mariner with his spear and he advances within 10 paces of the gun. Mariner says he was dancing and making sundry warlike gesticulations. He then throws his spear and it struck the muzzle. Mariner says, I was astonished at the boldness and the presumption of this warrior and was determined to punish him for his rashness. I accordingly leveled my musket, but just as I was pulling the trigger, an arrow struck the barrel of the piece and caused me to miss my aim. The warrior then gave a shout and all returned with great speed back to the fortress. Do you remember in episode 7, there was a Vava'u warrior by the name of Fanafonua, and he was one of the ones that was really upset when he heard about Tuponiwa's uh, death. And he had like a really tremendous hatred for guns. And so he made a bold declaration that he would throw his spear into a gun. And um, and so this was that guy. This was Fanafonua, that warrior. Mariner says, It was none other than Fanafonua who declared that he would advance boldly up to a gun and throw his spear into the mouth of it by way of expressing his contempt for this instrument of warfare. This warrior was the man and he doubt would have shared a severe fate had I been prepared for him, but having treated that threat as an idle boast, I had altogether forgetting the circumstance and did not again reflect on it until it was over. So the battle rages on and Mariner describes just the the challenges that they're having with this particular fort. Uh, one of the challenges that they were having was actually the height. And so the, the fort was taller than the one that they encountered in Nuku'alofa. And then also, you know, just some of the other advantages that I mentioned before uh, with walls that were built with that clay, um, clay-like dirt. And so it provided some kind of cushion against uh, cannons. And they haven't even unleashed the cannons yet. So we don't even know if it's working. But um, clearly, there are some challenges that are presented to Ulukalala's men, and they can't overtake the fort as quickly as they thought they could. One of the particular advantages from the height is that they had a vantage point where they could shoot arrows without getting um, shot in return. And so it was holding off some of uh, Fina Ulukalala's men. And then after a short while, the Vava'u warriors came out of the fortress, and this time in three divisions, the same as Ulukalala's army. However, when they were coming out, they concentrated all their efforts on Tupoto'a's division, mostly because, you know, the Vava'u people know he's the one that um, assassinated their beloved Tupo'o and so they were focusing all their attention on him. Ulukalala's men remained on the ground while this was going on, and some of his men, you know, got up to try to distract the enemy as they were moving in closer on Tupoto'a's division. And Mariner asked Ulukalala to call them back so he can aim and shoot his carronade at the enemy. 
and he says, Finau objected, stating that as the enemy ventured forward in an open body, he would receive their attack and fight them on equal terms, and that these guns gave him too great an advantage over them, such as he scorned to take, that it was more honorable to fight them man to man than to use against them arms that were rather fitted for the hostilities of spirits than of men. That is such an interesting, a very astute and wise um, perspective from uh, Finau Urukalala. Yeah, and just really just defines, um, again, like I mentioned before in other episodes, just the complexity of his character and his mannerisms, you know, um, and this is just one of the many dimensions to Finau Urukalala where he shows, you know, moments of, um, of like, violence and like he's very shrewd and very calculating but then also very wise. Ulukalala then uh, thanks Mariner for the advantages of having these weapons on his side. Um, so the Vava'u warriors were now getting closer and they started throwing their spears and um, the Hapai warriors could no longer just sit and wait and so they all sprung up and they rushed their foes and Mariner states that it was close hand-to-hand combat and it went on for an hour can you imagine just like these warriors beating the hell out of each other with these clubs or spears and this was going on for an hour and the Ha'apai warriors were finally able to push the Vavat warriors back into the fortress and it was now nighttime and um, the battle was still raging on Um, I would imagine that there was intermissions between all of this you know um and as this was happening, the Hapai warriors were just inching closer and closer to the main entrance of the fortress. And then finally, um, the famed warrior Siulua. In my readings about Siulua, people refer to him as like some sort of giant. And I imagine he must have been very tall. He probably was like, uh, just from these descriptions, he was probably like a Shaquille O'Neal size type of warrior. And, um,. If you remember back uh, to the episode where Tuponiwa was assassinated and at his burial, there was a warrior that stood up and he challenged all of the Vava'u warriors that if any of them want to take their revenge, that this was the time to do it. And he was like there, you know, calling them on, come and fight me. This is your time to exact your revenge. But none of the Vava'u warriors took the bait at that time. Um, you know, they had all their emotions in check. Let me tell you something about Vava'u people. We are long-suffering, and when your time comes, it will come. And so let's talk about what happened to Siulua. So Siulua was able to just barge through the fortress doors, and as he was fighting his way in, he took a five-barb spear to the chest, but it didn't bring him down. Um, so he's fighting and fighting, and he's advancing forward, and he was able to kill, you know, several of the men inside the fort. And he knocked out a man's brain with his club, according to Mariner. And as he retreated, two Vava'u warriors by the names of Naufahu and Pupunu speared him in the back. And so when he returned to his camp, he two spears were impaled in his back. And uh, Mariner reports that he died the next day. An interesting note on Naufahu. So Naufahu's father is Finaufisi, and Finaufisi is the half-brother of Finau Ulukalala, and his mother is Fijian. And he was very close to Finau Ulukalala, one of his main advisors. And um, interestingly, Naufahu detested him. He must have not had a 
close relationship with his father either because he was fighting on the opposite side. Uh, but uh, Naufahu did not like Fina Ulukalala because of the way he treated people. And so um, I would suspect that he was probably more of a follower or he was close to his uncle Duponiwa. And so um, he was uh, very much involved in this battle. And there's one particular battle that I found in my research, and this was one that took place in Mataika. I don't know if this is part of this battle or if there was a part of another battle, you know, in when they were in Vavau. But apparently, uh, Naufahu and Fanafonua, who we um, heard about earlier, um, during the battle in Vavau, his um, Naufahu's father, Finaufisi, had his own, they're kind of like bodyguards. And these were twin Fijian warriors. Um, their names were Koloi Ulupuaka and Koloi Loaloa. And um, so very uh, famed warriors. Um, they had a reputation. And so during one of these battles, uh, and again, like I said, I'm not sure if it's this particular battle or if it was another one in this series of um, battles that were happening in Vavau. But they were defeated with uh, the famous war clubs, Pasivulangi and Pasitaukei. And one thing about clubs, or Bovai, if you remember back in episode two, um, when the Port-au-Prince was in Tonga and, you know, some of the natives were coming on board the ship um, and they were bringing their clubs and spears with them. And so this startled uh, Captain Brown and he had asked them to remove all of their arms from the ship. And so uh, Mariner noticed that some clubs, they just like tossed it over, but some clubs they carefully wrapped and they were handing it like person to person. And the reason why is because some of these clubs had, um, they had names. And so any object that has a name, it's because they uh, regarded as, you know, some kind of a sacred object or an object that has a lot of mana. And that was the case with some of the bovai or some of these clubs. And at this particular battle where the two Fijian chief, the twins, uh, were defeated by um, Naufahu and also uh, Fanafonua, the clubs that were involved in that battle was the Pasivulangi and Pasitauke. Now, for those of you that follow Matematonga or the um, Kautoa team, um, in this last series that the Kautoa team played, uh, they were given names of warriors from Tonga's ancient past, uh, or they were named after um, uh, Bovais. And so Pasivulangi was the name that was given to Conrad Harrell. And um, the name means Strangers Applaud, a reference to the skill of the warrior using it so well that even the enemy would be amazed. Pastauke was the name that was given to Tuimoala Lolohea. And the name means that even the most skilled applaud at the mighty courage and the skill of the wielder. Uh, that is an interesting side note, and I want to find out more about that. So uh, let's bookmark that for now. Um, all the men who assisted in Tupou Niwa's assassination were killed, except for Tupou Toa. But um, you you all remember Latu Ila. So when they assassinated Tupou Niwa, there was that dude that came out and just like started beating his dead body. Um, and he was doing it to avenge the death of his father allegedly by Tuponiwa's hand. So he fought and he fought bravely and he was able to escape unscathed 
um, even though Mariner reported that there was like a group of people that rushed him and tried to kill him, but he uh, Mariner says he fought with uncommon bravery, and this was the first time he had distinguished himself. So they say he was defended by the gods. So he was able to escape, uh, but everyone else that was um, under Tupoto's division uh, died in that battle. Um, interestingly, also, um, so the women were there, and of course. Um, they have husbands, they have brothers, and they have maybe other family members that fight um, on their behalf, and they're there to provide assistance. And so they um, either dress their wounds or they take care of the dead. Um, they also come, um, you know, to feed them, to uh, make ngatu and things like that for them during uh, these times of war. And so one of the women uh, was Tupo Ahome, and she is the wife of Tupo Toa. And she was captured and taken prisoner by uh, the Vava'u people. Um, however, she was sent back to um, Fina Ulukalala and Tupoltoa because uh, she's also like highly ranked. Okay, probably um, the superior ranked uh, individual of that whole entire island at this time of the battle uh, because her uh, mother was a Tamaha. And so the Tamaha, if you remember, is the eldest daughter of the Tuitonga Fefine, and her name was Latu Fuipeka. And then her father was a Tuikanokpolu Tupolahi Si. And so, of course, you know, they're going to return her back to um, to her rightful place and where she needs to be. So another, uh, just another example of uh, the rules of engagement and how they're observed, you know, even during times of war. So night has set in and they set up a fire to keep themselves warm. And Ulkalala's Matapule makes uh, speeches to the garrison asking for uh, the Vava'u people and their chiefs to surrender and submit to the government of Fina Ulkalala. And of course they wouldn't because, you know, Vava'u people are very stubborn. And so even at the risk of being killed by Ulkalala or Tupotoa the next day, um, they still, they didn't budge. And so Ulkalala threatened that they would be there and they would remain there the whole night and that they would start building a fort opposite of theirs and that he was ready to just dig in the trenches and maintain this war until the Vava'u people and their fortress was defeated and destroyed. Um, but then he gave his orders to his men to silently and hastily return to Neafu, but to take a different path so that they're not detected and cut off by the enemy. And so... So he was bluffing. Um, they were ordered to take all the guns, including the carronades, back with them. And along the way, Mariner said the Hapai warriors were just like complaining about the heaviness of the guns and the carronades. And they were telling Mariner, like, you know, just teasing him, like how uh, this is so typical Tongan when I read this. They're like telling him, if you Europeans were so um, intelligent, why can't you um, build guns that have legs for them to walk on? So they finally make it to Neafu and Ulukalala orders for everybody to sleep on the Kalias for that night to protect themselves from any kind of attacks that might happen on land because of course it would leave them vulnerable and open to those kind of attacks. The next day, Mariner uh, just talks about the advantages of having uh, Mafihape as his adopted mother. And she, you know, made sure he was fed and he ate good. He describes the food he ate. Um, ufi, ripe bananas, and he really likes ota. He likes raw fish. That's one of the things that he likes to eat. And you know what, Mariner? I get it too. I love me a good ota. 
Okay, so change of plans, or maybe Fina Ukala was just bluffing. But now he wants a fort to be built in Neyafu, and so he sent his men out to cut reeds, um, and then they are building their fortress next to the shoreline with the back to the ocean, knowing that uh, the Vava'u people have dismantled their kalia to build smaller, swifter canoes, and they wouldn't dare approach the fort with all of the kalia that Ulkalala had in his command. And so the fencing and the ditch were completed on that first day, um, and it was enough that the war party felt safe to sleep on shore. But around midnight, um, there was a small opening in the fence that they didn't finish, and a small party came from the Vava'u camp and attacked uh, Fina'u Kalala's camp and ended up wounding a lot of the warriors there. And like everyone's going crazy and they're running all over the place and some try to get on their canoes but forgot that it was low tide so the um, Galias weren't going anywhere. And in all this frenzy and madness, um, and mind you, it's dark, and Mariner said that some of them leapt uh, off the banks. And so those of you that are familiar with Neafu, it's like there's like a steep climb on the on the bank of Neafu. Okay, so in Lolo Halaivalu, um, it's very like you have to climb upstairs from the shore. There's actually not even a beach there. Um, it is just like drops right into the ocean. There's a wharf there. Um, and then you have to climb up either there's some stairs or there's like a road you can take. Um, but it's actually quite a climb. And so um, some of the warriors were just running around, you know, being uh, because it was so chaotic. And they fell off and they broke their legs and broke their arms. And Mariner says that some of them got um, tetanitis from all their injuries. And so they died like a day later or two days after all of that commotion. So that was a little setback for Finao Ulukalala and his uh, camp. And then the next day, uh, they continued working on the fencing and then they added a second ditch. And Mariner describes a ditch as 18 feet wide and 10 feet deep. And then in three days, um, the Neafu fortress was completed. And just as they are finishing up the fort, um, and it's completely fortified and um, protected from any enemy attacks. Four women arrive at the fort, and they are defectors from the Fatungakoa fortress in Veletoa. They report to Fina Ulukalala that the Vava'u warriors, um, having revenged themselves on most of Tupo Niwa's murderers, have come to the resolution of waiting a little time without having recourse to any offensive measures. So basically, you know, they got what they wanted. And so now they're just going to wait and see what Finao's real intentions are. Ulkalala gave orders that a strong party should go forth early in the morning towards the enemy's fortress and destroy all of the plantations they could come at. But in case of an attack, they should make the retreat as speedily as possible. In the afternoon, they returned laden with yams, plantains, but having met with a sudden attack from the enemy, had lost several of their men. They brought intelligence that they had discovered a large field of fine yams nearly fully grown, but it was so well defended that they could not, with prudence, make an attack on it. Finau, however, resolved to remain quiet the following night, lest the enemy should be lying in wait for him, and the night after that to proceed with a large and strong party to plunder and destroy this plantation. Meanwhile, another young chief, uh, so we have a defection from Finau's side, and this was the son of Liu Fao. And so he defected to Vava'u side, and then he takes intelligence to them, letting them know of this raid that's about to happen on their plantation. And Liu Fao would be the remaining 
chief that's going to be defending the Neafu fortress. And so the Vava'u people laid their plan accordingly. They had two large parties of warriors, well armed, and they hid in the bush and they waited for Fina Urukalala's men to come and raid and steal from the plantation. Another party was sent to the Neafu fort to take advantage of the position of Liu Fao. So the plan was put into motion. So you have the party waiting to ambush Fina Urukalala's men. You have the other party that's making their way to the Neafu fort, which is guarded by Liu Fao. And Liu Fao, of course, wasn't going to um, put up any opposition. He was just going to let them in and take over the fort. However, as Fina Urukalala and his men were making their way to the plantation, they were approached by a defector from the Feletoa fort. And he informed Fina Urukalala of exactly what was happening. Okay, this is probably a good time to stop in this episode and this part of the story because um, there's just a lot more action that is coming up. And so um, this is a good time to stop and take a breather and also just to look back and reflect on some of the things in this episode. One of the things that I really loved about this part in the story was this period of armistice. And I'm wondering if we had a name for it, um, you know, a Tongan name for it. So I want to research that and find out because um, Mariner does state that it's uh, it's an old um, practice. And so um, this is the only time I've heard of anything like this. Um, and that's probably because, you know, if it's documented, I'm just ignorant of it. So I need to find out more. Um, we hear about the names of these great warriors. And so um, we have the Fijian twins, then we have Bubunu. And we also have Naufahu and Fanafonua, Siulua. These are all names. The thing that's really cool about this is that these are all names that a lot of you carry today. And so I just think that's so remarkable that these uh, names are like family treasures that have carried on through thousands and thousands of years. You know, I mean, despite like whatever character flaws they had or things like that, there's nothing wrong with us acknowledging their existence and their contribution to history. Um, and, you know, being Tongans, um, our island is so small and we're so interconnected and we're so, uh, so many of us are just related to each other. And we see this in this story like over and over again because of all these different marriages and all these different connections and genealogies and things like that. And so... I find that just to be one of the most fascinating things um, that I value about being Tongan. And speaking of, you know, another fascinating, um, one of the things I loved about this episode was just Ulukalala himself. You know, there are times when he, I'm reading and I'm really intrigued by him and I just think like, oh, he's so cool. And then he does something completely like out of left field. So like, you know, we see his, um, his barbaric side. We've seen his very intelligent side we seen that there are times he's capable of like having emotional intelligence but then he's like you know he can be shrewd and i mean it's just the complexity of this character um, i find him to be very endearing and um my mom told me that we're related to him actually and so i didn't know that we had a tuanuku side but now i know because that's where urukalala is from but um anyway 
I'm still in love with this story, even though the first time I read it was like over 20 years ago. And I'm so happy that many of you are following and supporting this podcast. And you are like from all over the world, which is so cool. And so for me, it's an honor to work on this podcast and put it together for you every week. I wish I had more capacity to do more research and even put out the episodes, you know, even quicker. But unfortunately, I don't. And um, and so, again, I'm just thankful that some of you are hanging on um, to, and listening every week, sending me comments. And um, I definitely promise you that I will do a Q&A. Um, I have some guests lined up. Um, I just haven't had time to do it because I would normally record it during the week. And weekends is really just my free time to do this. So as soon as I get all of that organized and situated, we will go back to answering some of your questions because I've gotten a lot of really good ones. And then I've got some really strange ones. And so um, let me be clear about something. Um, When I am asking uh, for feedback or for your questions for the podcast, uh, what I am not asking for is for you to send me suggestions on how I can improve my podcast. I do my podcast however the hell I want, and I do it on my own time and on my own dime. And so, while thank you for your suggestions, I would say um, take your suggestions and start your own podcast. And then let me know about it, and you know, I am more than happy to um, blast it so that everyone can tune in and subscribe and listen or whatever. But I just wanted to get that off my chest. And I did want to end on that. But, you know, I'm not mad about it. I'm, I'm not. I, I'm not petty like Finao Urukalala to go and wipe out a field of kava just because I'm mad at the people of Ava'u. The world is huge. The internet is available for everybody. And there are tools where you can just go and make your own podcast and do and say whatever you want. So anyway, I hope you all enjoyed this episode. And tune in next week for episode 10. And then I will get my shit together and get the next Q&A out. So once again, thank you all for supporting. Thank you all for listening. Ofatu. Oh, oh, oh.